on this episode of the End of Tourism podcast. It's hard to say that, but I mean, the right to fly does not exist. The right to tourism does not exist. Mm-hmm. This is true. The right to tourism does not exist. I mean, tourism is not sustainable because you can't extend the model of tourism everybody thinks about to all the population. It's impossible. Welcome to the end of tourism, a podcast about wanderlust, exile, and radical hospitality. For some, tourism can entail learning, freedom, or financial survival. For others, it means the loss of culture, land, and lineage. Our conversations explore the unauthorized histories and consequences of modern travel. They are dispatches from the resistance. Our guest today is Daniel Pardo, an organizer of various neighborhood organizations in Barcelona, Spain. Today we'll be talking to Daniel about his work with ABDT, the Assembly of Neighborhoods for Tourism Degrowth. Daniel moved to Barcelona 15 years ago and has since become a passionate activist, investigating and fighting against the exploitation of his city and its people. He's also currently the coordinator of the project Biblioteca de Objetos, a library of objects. We are also joined by Ana Elia, a friend and native of Barcelona who completed her doctorate on gendered social networks in community-based ecotourism projects in Ghana. She is the co-director of SEDA, a migrant and environmental justice organization founded by Ghanaian migrants to support rural resilience in Africa as well as to support migrant people in Catalonia. I caught up with Daniel and Anaelia to speak about Barcelona, what has become of it as a result of over-tourism, and the local struggles against touristification there. We discuss what the COVID-19 pandemic did to Barcelona, and what, if anything, we can learn from the Great Pause. This episode is entitled, Neighborhood Resistance and Resilience in Barcelona. So Barcelona has a long history of hosting international tourism events. The World's Fair, the Olympic Games, and most recently the the Forum of Cultures. As a resident of Barcelona, how have you seen your city change over the course of years or decades as a result of tourism? I will start by my so my own experience. And so when I got to Barcelona about 15 years ago, well, it was already a, a mass tourism destination, but the, there were quite many differences. Um, things have got worse and worse in, in these 15 years, meaning that the massification of the city has increased quite a lot. But I must say there's also I mean, the other thing that uh, changed a lot is the fact that people from Barcelona no longer accept this fact as something that is fine and they live with. But um, touristification has uh, become uh, a public problem since, uh, I would say, between five and ten years, 
and this is a, a, a solid reality that won't change that easy um, uh, as it was before. In, in the past, there was really no public debate about it, and this will keep on happening as long as the touristification keeps in the same degree. And, well, I mean, if, if we must go back in the years, it will be very difficult to to explain all the, the evolution of uh, tourism in Barcelona. I mean, that's always a very important date to, to point, which would be uh, the Olympic Games. But it, it's, it is also true that um, during the 80s, uh, Barcelona, it was on another level, but it was already a touristic place. It is true that almost nothing, so, I don't know, I mean, yeah, that's, there has always been, except uh, for the pandemic, there's always been more and more tourism, and this um, continuous growth of touristification uh, has also been accelerating during the time, just to give a general Daniel, you are a organizer, participant, and leader of the organization ABTD, or the Assembly of Neighborhoods for Tourism Degrowth in Barcelona. Could you tell our listeners how ABTD was formed and what are some of its principles and principal actions? So, in fact, it, it, it's a quite young uh, organization. It was born about six years ago, I would say. And somehow it's the consequence of different things that were happening in this city since a while. Um, I could go back until the beginning of the 21st century. And in that time, there was no public conflict around uh, tourism and touristification in Barcelona. There was just the beginning of some kind of conflict around the tourism rental apartments, a long time before Airbnb, but there was already this kind of accommodation, and some people were complaining about it. It was really small in that time, and for a long time, the only problem observed by most people around this kind of accommodation was the problem of how to live by this kind of um, apartments and it was not conceived as a housing problem, so somehow as a political problem. And this kept on for a while and sometime six years later, it's the time I got to Barcelona, and so I can say that in that time I started to participate in some neighborhood uh, organizations here in the center of the city. And what I saw in that time was that even without being aware of it, uh, these kind of organizations were uh, specializing in touristification. I mean, when there was some housing problem, there was always a hotel or this kind of apartment behind when they were fighting because of a work conflict 
It was usually because of a hotel or a bar or something like that. Or then, uh, if there was um, some kind of uh, urban planning conflict, it was because this planning was made uh, specifically for a new hotel. I mean, somehow we have kind of problems. These organizations were dealing with in the center of Barcelona were very often related to touristification. But at the time, there wasn't a, view, a global view on these problems and the city as uh, a victim um, of a touristification process. So for some years, these organizations, and me with them, learned a lot because we were working and dealing with these kind of problems um, every day. We started to create a more general critique on, on, the, on the issue. Obviously, this wasn't only happening in my neighborhood, but also in the one uh, a little farther, and that other one, and maybe a little farther. At some point, uh, some of us started to think that we needed some kind of coordination space in order to scale the struggle uh, in the same way that the problem of touristification does. Maybe not in the same way, but... Um, uh, touristification and tourism industry are very global on scale um, items, but at least trying to to struggle at a scene scale and no longer uh, just um, a neighborhood scale. Anyway, this uh, took a little time because I mean, we are just social movements and, and we lack of time uh, always. And so just the fact of thinking about a new coordination space is just like, oh no, it's not possible. So for a long time, uh, not for a long time, but for, for, for a few years, just uh, knew it had to happen, but didn't make it happen. And then in 2015, there were some things that somehow pushed creation of, of a coordination space. First of all, in the summer of 2014, people started to see every day lots of people getting into their buildings with the parks and homes in, in, in La Basin, the Barceloneta, which is a very popular neighborhood, are really small. You can hear everything from everyone. And they were also very uh, conscious that people were being uh, fired out from their homes because of this. And at a certain point, they couldn't stand it anymore, and they just started to gather every evening in the square, in the main square of the neighborhood, trying to find a solution to the problem. And they started to march on all around the, the neighborhood and pointing out the agencies, the, the real estate agencies that were um, renting these apartments. And they were doing this in an, in an incredible number of people. I mean, in a small neighborhood of about 15,000 people, every night there were between 1,000 and 2,000 people um, on the square. And, and this kept on for a month or a month and a half every evening. And everybody in the city started to say, well, maybe there's something happening uh, with, the, with tourism in the city. 
So this, this was the first team. There was also the fact that, that in other in other neighborhoods, in the 2015 city elections, there were two parties going to these elections, which uh, political point of view on tourism and tourification in Barcelona for the first time ever. I mean, the city government in Barcelona historically managed the city because the tourism industry for the tourism industry. I mean, that's always been an understanding between private uh, tourism sector and public power really, really uh, dangerous, I think, for democracy and for the population of Barcelona, it, it ruled the city for decades. So for the first time, there were two, um, two lists uh, saying things clearly uh, uh, against this um, tourism model, and one of them took the power. So, so there were people in the city hall making a public speech from a power place and really critical speech with uh, tourism and touristification. So all these kind of things started to make people think. The other one, which is probably the strongest one, is just the fact that the very education process became much uh, too uh, hard for people to keep on ignoring it. I mean, who wasn't suffering from a housing problem due to touristification, a walking problem due to, to touristification, had some relative, had some friend, had somebody close who was suffering from that. And this is the context in which our organization was born. So we just uh, called the people who had known in the, in the previous years in assemblies about uh, tourism in other neighborhoods, people we had crossed from other associations and so on. And we told them, well, we'd like to do this, uh, this protest, taking this thing and everything. So the answer was mm, the same from everyone and everybody said, yeah, let's go. But then when this will be done, we keep on uh, gathering and, and thinking together. And so this was the, the beginning. And I mean, our, our reaction really couldn't believe it because the reaction had uh, clearly overpassed the proposal we had done. So I think it today, I think that was a good point. Things have changed, and that is how it, it, it was born. And I would say, for at least, I would say, the first three years of, li- of the life of, of the UBT, I mean, I, I take a look back uh, nowadays and, and I just can't think it, it was uh, amazing. I mean, In 2015, the same year that ABTD was founded, the political party Barcelona en Comú was elected on the ticket of looking to limit tourism in the city. What, if anything, have you seen in regards to the successes of the political party since their election? And what do you think have been the limits to achieving the goals within the political spectrum, within the political party process? So I, 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 I can only say it was uh, quite a big deception. I mean, for six years. So when they started, they were really, I won't say radical, because 
was really far from our goals, but there were many things we could talk with them, and there were quite many places we could meet, with many ideas we could share. But as the time passed, as these first four years passed, they got softer and softer in front of the tourism industry. The tourism industry made clear to them that they, they were very vulnerable in terms of elections and votes. They were directly attacked by the tourism industry. And so little by little, they, I don't know if I'd say gave up, maybe yes. Still, they're more critical than nobody ever was from the city hall in Barcelona. But this hope that there was about six years ago, I think it helped quite, quite a lot to generate the grassroots movements. This hope is, is no longer there. I mean, everybody knows much more about the consequences of mass tourism in Barcelona, and this is good, but I don't know if the, if the chances for a change are still there. I don't mean they disappeared, but... Some new things have to happen in order to, to change things. When I was looking at the work of ABDT online, I noticed that the organization was previously called the Assembly of Neighborhoods for Sustainable Tourism. And it has since become the Assembly of Neighborhoods for Tourism Degrowth. Yeah. Would you care to offer our listeners, Daniel, the differences between degrowth tourism and sustainable tourism, and to tell us why you think that change in name was important for the organization? Yeah, that's quite easy. I mean, we never believed uh, about the possibility of um, sustainable tourism in a short term in Barcelona. I mean, this first name was quite fake. Since the beginning, very much represented by the idea of tourism degrowth, but nobody talked about that in the city at the time, and we didn't want to be just rejected because of radicals. And so it was kind of a balance between what we felt we were and what we wanted to reflect outside. I mean, we didn't like it, but we thought it was a, a way to start to work, and I think it was positive because I think that quite many people, when they heard us for the first time, this thing of sustainable tourism, the problem was that we felt more and more uncomfortable with this. I mean, just because of ourselves, but also by, because we met other organizations which which said, no, but we have nothing to do with someone who talks about the sustainable tourism. I mean, well, to us, it's just a label, so it's a pity that we can work together. It didn't happen a lot, but there was this kind of feeling. And at a certain point, we just decided that the, the label of tourism industry, which was really old and, and old-fashioned uh, since the beginning, somehow. And on the other hand, we have, have been working with this uh, concept of um, tourism degrowth uh, for years, three years, and we thought we were ready to change this as we did, and I think we were right. And about the concepts, the first thing 
it was really an internal process we did um, in our organization. I mean, I said that we are a coordination of, uh, space for different uh, neighborhood associations and collectives, and so we cover a big part of the map of, the, of Barcelona. And I, somehow I think that this is somehow our strength. And the fact that this organization is, is composed by several um, individual uh, associations, each one of which knows very well its territory and its reality. And so what we did was a very simple diagnosis process uh, in which each neighborhood analyzed its situation, taking in account the same inputs, accommodation, public space, work, contamination, pollution, whatever. And then we just put it all together and we made somehow an approximation to a city diagnosis on touristification. And so the problems were more or less the same as we were, but there were different degrees of affectation of these problems. This somehow, it, it confirmed our perception, our most intuitive perception, which was that thing had been going too far for a long time and that the process had, had to be revived. Mm. And this is the place where this concept of tourism growth uh, begins. Somebody was saying, it's not enough to, to, to decorate things. I mean, we just can't keep on growing. We need tourism to grow. We need to take this down. As we started to think about the idea, which we developed, yeah. not in the little detail, but with some ideas to, to put in practice this, um, this concept. And to give our listeners some context, where does the desire for degrowth come from when sustainability isn't enough, right? The housing crises that, that grip tourist towns or cities is generally a result of gentrification, but tourism plays a huge part in that. Local people can't afford to live in the very places they grew up in. Their homes turn into Airbnb rentals, as I'm sure you know very well. Some people refuse to leave both squatting and evictions begin. So what is it like to live in a city like that, being surrounded often by hordes of tourists and then wondering, coming home, if you can afford the rent for next month or next year? Mm-hmm. I mean, the first idea that comes to my mind is about precarity. The whole life becomes much more precarious. First of all, because of, of many people don't know how long they will get to stand in their place, but also because, because even if you can stay, um, maybe your, your people, your friends must leave, mm. and this is also precarity. Also because so many shops that we need in our day-to-day life disappear and are replaced by things that are useful for, for local people or impossible to pay them. Also because the jobs also specialized in tourism, which is um, 
the most precarious sector in the, in the city of Barcelona. And then we have also many other problems. There are many places in the city, and mainly in the, in the center, uh, are really crowded by masses. And then you can't easily walk from one place to another. So there are all these kind of problems, but I have to say, the human being is very adaptable. For example, the, the Rambla is so famous uh, avenue in the center of Barcelona. And I, mean, I think I didn't walk it uh, truly for 14 years since the pandemic. Because locals don't walk the Rambla, we just, we just cross it. <laughs> and and, and th- th- this was our perceptions, but then somebody made a study of mobility studying the profiles of people crossing and walking the Rambla. Right, every tourist walks the Rambla from a, from a point to another. And locals don't do it at all. Not because we don't like it. I mean, I learned that I liked it a year ago. I never tried to walk it because it was really awful. And because when you're in your city, you have, you have, if you have time to take a walk, it's good, but usually you're going to places in the same time as you're um, walking. This kind of avoiding places, making circles to get to places, it's made by places you must avoid and places you can walk uh, more easily. Wow. And, and you can take this kind of thinking pattern to other things in, in the city. I mean, I don't know, I'm, I'm just making it out right now. Uh, maybe you don't go shopping every day, but then you will go every one, once uh, every two days, because then you will suffer less. But you, you, you find yourself fooling yourself to avoid certain, certain things you, you don't want to assume. That ring true for you as well, Analia? Amen. <laughs> yeah, very similar. I avoid places, clearly. There's some neighborhoods where I've, I've lived for many years outside Barcelona. I, I was living not in the country, and now that I've come back, I found myself going to the old Merceria, how do you call it? the place where you buy thread and all of this. And I was just going to Santana, and when I went there, I was calling my mom, Mom, where is this shop? It's no more. No, no, no. They moved it to a smaller place because the real estate was so expensive there. They, but that was a place of my grandma, you know, where she would go or a place where they would sell bacalao. Very common in the more touristy part. And my mom said, oh, let's go buy this. And when I went there, there was a, a footwear shop or something that is like, who buys these things? And clearly it's not... It's not for the person who lives there. No matter where you come from, no matter where you're born, it's not for the local person who makes their life there, takes kids to school. I used to go with my friends down to have a drink or like the typical bar, like with the metal chairs, <laughs> I don't know. And now it's all fancy. It's super fancy. We don't go there. We don't identify there. I mean, you know, it's not everything bad, but there are moments that you realize... I don't recognize this place and changes are good, but maybe some of the changes should take into account what is good for the people who live their lives there and want to drink water from the fountain and want to 
be quiet at night and, and walk around the street. And but yeah, very similar to to what Daniel is saying. Yeah. I'm reminded of a concept which is the right to the city, the derecho a la ciudad, uh, and I'm curious if. That's something that's utilized in the philosophies of uh, ABTD, Daniel. Yeah, I mean, we don't usually use the term, but we know the concept and it's very related to our way of thinking, but I, I, I must insist, we won't find it often on our texts. On our, it's interesting because it's the concept that can easily include in, right to housing and our struggle. It's a, a very usual alliance. And so in this is a concept that fits very well because it, it can take both of them at the same time. Thank you. This might be new to me, but it seems that ABTD, like other social movements, especially here in Oaxaca, they use the public forum or assemblea model of meeting and decision-making. I would love it if you could offer our listeners a little bit about how the assemblies work and, and how they've influenced the organization and its action. Yeah, I mean, well, yeah, we're, we're an assembly, but somehow we're not an assembly of individuals, but an assembly of collectives. So since the beginning, we thought that we chose a kind of meeting uh, frequency, meaning once a week or something like that, we wouldn't live longer. Since the beginning, we meet once uh, a month. For years, this happened physically. We met in, in a place the first uh, Monday of every month. Um, since the pandemic, we've been doing this uh, on the video conference. And, and for the rest of the time, we just um, contact and talk uh, mainly through mail, through email. And so the interesting thing is that working like that, you, you don't need everyone to be in the assembly. You just need a minimum of one for every neighborhood organization. We, we have a list of the subjects to, to deal with, which are shared before and which is constructed collectively. By its own, every association takes a position on these things, which is taken to the assembly by one, two, or three people. When there's a debate, Sooner or later, the, the, the global position is clear. Not, there are not really fights or, or competitions to win a decision. So we work mainly like that. Then, this is for the assembly, then when there are important issues, maybe for an action, it may be we're working on the amends, on the amends to a new law, or because we're organizing an event created specifically for, for a precise goal, the assembly is, I would say, a classical model. It has its defaults, which are mainly not uh, big speed. But on the other hand, the, the decisions we take are quite solid. I'm curious 
what the plague did to Barcelona as a result and Barcelona as a tourist city. We know mm -hmm. that uh, tourism more or less died temporarily during mm -hmm. that time on a global scale. But what happened in Barcelona and what lessons can we learn from the year in which tourism was put on pause? We didn't learn a thing. The thing that we learned, we knew it. We knew that. I mean, somehow it just served to confirm what we've been saying for years, which is there's an excessive dependence of the city economy and tourism, and this is dangerous. And we always repeat the same thing. 2017, there was um, a terrorist attack on the Rambla, and everybody was really scared that it would stop tourism in Barcelona. And suddenly, people started People, I mean, not us, I mean, even the tourism sector started to talk about diversifying, about searching other models, um, and we were really amazed, surprised. This lasted for two or three months until tourism just recovered. Well, so three years later, We passed, we passed three years saying what happened with this idea of diversifying, of searching other things, and nobody cared about it. So there's been a pandemic, tourism stopped, and there was nothing prepared. Nobody said we couldn't know. Mm. All they can say is we don't care. Mm, and, wow. and they can say we don't care because, I mean, they do care, they do care about their money, but mm, it takes the worst part of people working in this um, sector, which is monopolizing the economy of the city and also um, the jobs. They're doing all they can to get back to what it was, even if it was a disaster, Even if um, climate uh, emergency is more evident than ever, but everybody in Barcelona is talking about um, the airport extension, I mean, about a bigger airport. So they, they don't want to run. I'm curious about a question for uh, Daniel. Please, please go ahead. Given that the citizens in Barcelona, we got used a little bit these past months to live with less tourism, that we are able to walk freely through a park that we usually have to do huge lineups or that mm -hmm. we got the chance over the past months to walk a little bit of La Ramblas. You know, we experienced something that for many years we haven't experienced. Do you think there's an opportunity now that people have embodied a little bit alive without tourism that now when all the monster comebacks again that we're going to be able to speak from the contrast that we'll have more critical mass again for some time before we numb ourselves to unite forces and say hey this is crazy again or you think this will just go unseen and 
you know, there's no opportunity now from the contrast that is coming up. So, uh, I don't have a clear answer, of course, the jurisdiction process has been a very progressive thing. I mean, we have been taken our city little by little, and suddenly we got it back. We got it back with enormous problems, I mean, many people without work, many people without a home, enormous problems, but for a while, the city got back to us. And this is a feeling that, for example, I had known in Barcelona, that people I know who were born here hadn't known for decades, and there's a big joy in, in getting back those places and that city. And to me, there's a hope in the fact that if things uh, change back too quickly, people can really feel very angry and maybe also know how to organize. But on the other hand, the, the economic situation makes it very easy for the lobbies to say, um, well, sorry to bother, but that, that, that's an urgent. And do you have another idea? Mm-hmm. No, so let's make choice. This will be uh, the, the deal. I've wondered about this quite a bit also living in a tourist down here in Oaxaca and what happens if tourism disappears tomorrow and if our inability to come to that question as a a blessing happens as a result of our lack of imagination or the loss of imagination. In Barcelona, you know, a city with at least in pre-pandemic numbers, something like 30 million tourists each year in a city that has 1.6 million residents. In every possible understanding of the word, this is unsustainable. And what often happens or seems to be happening now is a rise in what's often referred to uh, as tourism phobia mm-hmm. or the fear of the stranger, xenophobia, because certainly in the last 10 years in Southern Europe, along the Mediterranean coast, uh, there's a huge amount of refugees entering Europe, uh, as well as tourists. And in some places, there's uh, hatred for the refugee. In some places, there's hatred or fear of of the, the tourist. And so I imagine you both see this in Barcelona, and, and I wonder how can movements like ABTD work to degrow tourism while uh, not feeding the, the fire of, of racism or xenophobia. Mm-hmm. We ourselves, we've suffered often um, attacks of uh, being pointed like uh, tourismophobics. We had to use uh, too much time to explain it and deny it. And in fact, our conclusion is that, in fact, tourismophobia um, does not, not exist. It's just a propaganda campaign from the tourism sector in order to deviate the attention. No? As by chance, this concept and this campaign happens in a moment when the hegemony 
of the tourism industry is being questioned um, strongly in, in many places in South Europe. And as by chance, in that moment, they start to talk about xenophobia. Uh, and as it happens, uh, as it happens, very usually, very often in the history, following a, a very usual pattern, which is blaming the, the, the victims. I mean, it's funny that the hotel owner tell me it's, it's my problem. It's because of me, not because of him. But one thing I must say, I mean, one thing we always say is we're not against um, tourism just because we, uh, we are against this volume of tourism because it is too much, because the economy of the city is uh, too much concentrated in it. And if we were a, tourist, a touristified city, but the city um, exploited by a petrol platform, we would probably be fighting against the petrol industry. And this is the idea. I mean, the kind of industry we don't choose it because the city has been chosen by an industry uh, to make profit. And it's being exploited as if it was petrol. Mm. So, the important thing is coming back to tourismophobia. I, I understand perfectly someone who is uh, suffering from touristification because of noise in the night, because people are being fired from their neighborhood, because uh, their life is getting worse and worse. And I can understand the people who turn against tourists because I think it's a natural reaction. But I think this has been a major role as a UDT through the years is to explain to the people they should point their anger and their strength against the industry and not against tourists. This is more difficult because it's much easier to talk bad about tourists or even to insult them, but this will never produce a change. And so the important thing is to turn against the true um, guilty of the, of the situation, the, the, the true responsible. Tourism to me seems like an industry fundamentally based both in consumption and specifically in a way of evading responsibility, personal mm -hmm. or otherwise. If that's the case, do you think the industry can be improved or do we have to begin imagining completely different ways of traveling or other ways of learning about other places? So to me, I mean, yeah, we should change our way of choice in consumption. I've done it myself. But to me, this is not the point. I mean, it's not about consumption, it's about production. And it's, to me, the focus must go on the production. And it's about public control of private sector based on, on, on democratic decisions by the people. I mean, 
and people might have all the information they need in order to choose. It's good to talk about that and to join that debate, but I think that the problem is quite more um, urgent, and I think uh, that uh, public administrations must really control the, 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 the tourism markets. It's hard to say that, but I mean, the right to fly does not exist. The right to tourism does not exist. This is true. The right to tourism does not exist. I mean, tourism is not sustainable because you can't extend the model of tourism everybody thinks about to all the population. It's impossible. Mm. You are living and you are traveling and you are touring very, very uh, longer than a possibility. So, mm -hmm. And the possibilities are the ones of our planet. And we've been talking mainly about the effects of touristification in the city. But talking about the planet, um, tourism is one of the main producers of uh, CO2 uh, emissions. So it's not um, what should we do. I mean, the planet is telling us what to do. And we are not listening at all. Thank you, Daniel. So, for our last question, I'd like to ask you about the other movements that, that you've met in your time with ABTD. What kind of solidarity with other similar movements for degrowth tourism have you encountered? And is there work happening between them? There has been. We didn't have the time to, to strengthen this network as much as we would have liked, but there's a, there's, a, there's a work that was done, there's a network, and there are so many marvelous people uh, I had the chance to meet in the South Europe three years ago before um, a network called South Europe Against Tourification. We've met physically uh, twice, once here, and there were grassroots uh, movements from Lisbon, Porto, Sevilla, Major, Canaries, Valencia, Madrid, Barcelona, San Sebastian, from Italy there was Naples, Rome, Milan, um, Geneva, and maybe some other one from the south. Yeah, it was about 25 cities from the um, cities and territories from the South Europe. And not all of them were totally active, but all of them were interested in knowing what was happening. It was fun to know why we chose uh, this name, South Europe. That's a geopolitical shared condition in the South uh, Europe. Portugal, Italy, uh, Greece, Spain which were the, the bad-behaving countries in Europe, macroeconomically speaking, which are the countries who most suffered uh, the economic crisis of 2008, and which have been becoming the holiday part of the first world, the global world. And, I mean, it's a, it's a collective thought. We haven't been, been, been thinking about why we chose this 
area of this region no? as, as an identity. But in the moment when somebody pointed on it, it was very natural to explain to ourselves that there was this cultural identity related to the role this area is playing in Europe and in the world. Mm. The fact that these countries have been suffering the economical crisis in a stronger way than others, I think it is related to the fact that it's becoming uh, the, the Asian's park. Because how can you better exploit a territory in, in this uh, touristification way? Well, people are, are suffering from the crisis. They will probably be ready to stand more than if they were. Wow. Well, it must be something to to know as a collective and as individuals and as residents of uh, cities in Southern Europe that you're not alone, that there are others with their strategies and that work together on a, a regional basis and not just on a local basis. Mm-hmm. Well, that brings us to the end of the interview and Elia, do you have anything to add or to ask? I'm very grateful for having been mostly witnessing this conversation, learned plenty from Daniel, and I'm very glad for the work that you do, and it's super inspiring. And as a citizen here, you know, makes me want to do more. So thank you so much, and thank you, Chris, for drawing this conversation into into happening. Well, may this be an opportunity for our listeners to know that there's people in the world who are working and honoring their cities and their towns and their cultures in good ways, and that they're not alone. And, you know, whether you're people who work in the tourism industry, whether you're tourists or whether you're activists, this is an example of what we can learn from. Thank you, Daniel, for joining us today. And thank you both for your willingness to to speak and to speak in English in languages not your mother tongue. Thank you again, Daniel. Thanks to you. My pleasure. Blessings on your day and your holiday today. Thank you for listening to this episode of the End of Tourism podcast. If what you heard had its way with you, if the arrows hit their mark, click subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening. To go deeper, join us at theendoftourism.com and follow us on social media under the handle The End of Tourism. Until then, farewell, friends.